All right, well, we are now about halfway through a very long story in the book of Genesis that does two things, a story that warns us of all of the damage sin can do when it runs rampant in the people of God and churches and in Christian homes, and then on the other hand, shows us the limits of what it can do, almost like the the sea that the Lord has prescribed limits to, and that sea is chaotic. It can do great damage to a ship when it rears up all of its waves, and yet the Lord has said of the shoreline, this far and no further, right? The sea can't go any farther than that. Now, sin among the people of God is very similar. It does great damage to our lives, but the Lord has put a limit. It, said it can do this, but it, but it can't do this. So we're kind of getting a dual message over these two weeks. Uh, great warnings to show us. Don't, don't fall into some of these sins that these characters fell into. Disastrous results. On the other hand, assurance that God will accomplish his purposes no matter what. No matter what happens, no matter how ugly things get. So last week we read this story. I'm going to walk you through it instead today because it's rather a long story and we have been through it once. This is the story of Jacob stealing the inheritance and blessing from his twin brother Esau. And the way the story plays out is this. It is told over seven scenes with in the beginning, a prologue that's a wedding, and then at the end, an epilogue that's another wedding. So if you want to imagine this thing as a play on the stage, just imagine the curtain goes up and there's a wedding scene. After the wedding is over, there are six scenes that are each two characters talking to each other. Different characters in each scene, two characters talking. And then at the end, an epilogue, another wedding. That's the way the story breaks down. In the middle, in those seven scenes, what happens is there is a family of four, a father named Isaac who is soon to die and he knows it, he is on his deathbed. And so he calls his son Esau, his firstborn, whom he loves and favors in, and says, go out into the field and hunt great food, prepare it, bring it back to me, I will eat it, and with my soul warm and filled, I will bless you before I die. This is an act in the ancient world that said, you are my heir, I'm going to hand everything down to you by giving you this blessing, and with it even comes the blessing of God. Jacob the younger son, twin sons, but he's the younger one, then proceeds to sneak in and steal the blessing from Esau. Along the way, many characters fall into many sins, many people do many terrible things, and by the end, it all blows up in their face. By the end of it, those who love each other are exiled from each other. Jacob is left with almost nothing out in the desert. Things end terribly for everybody involved. So on one hand, you've got this cautionary tale. Don't do the sorts of things Rebecca did. Don't do the sorts of things Jacob did. That sort of thing. We've got a lot of those lessons. And on the other hand, we will see in the end that the story lands right where God said it was landing, despite the worst efforts of his people. So we've got warnings and we've got great assurance together. Uh, I'll walk more slowly through the story now. We will review the two warnings we talked about last week. Then I'm going to give you two more, and then we'll end things up with a great word of assurance. So in the prologue, we saw in chapter 26 last week, verses 34 and 35, there's that prologue wedding scene, and this is where Esau takes for wives two Hittite women, and you can see some problems with this. Not one wife, but two wives at the same time. And we pulled from 
from that a number of lessons, warnings against tinkering with God's design for marriage as it immediately makes things go terribly for him, cautionary tale there. Also, we found their warning against marrying outside of God's people. If you're one of God's people, you don't want to intentionally marry outside of God's people. If you're curious about either of those, go back to last week's sermon, hear that. There are some words there on that. Then we move into to the first of those seven scenes where Isaac comes into the picture. And once Isaac shows up, we start thinking, hey, this is very similar to Isaac's wedding story. So let's contrast those two. And when we did that, we found that Abraham was a very active father in his son's marriage, and Isaac a very passive father. We learned a subtle lesson there against passive leadership in the home. If you're a father or a husband, I encourage you to go back and hear that. So we're landing here in scene one now. Isaac is calling his son Esau in, and he says to him, now, I am about to die. I need to hand my blessing and my estate down to you. Go and, go and hunt great food. Go and bring it into me. I will smell it. I will eat it. It will warm my heart, and I will bless you from the bottom of my heart before I die. We see in that action something that we had already been told about a few chapters before, but we see how deep it goes now. We see Isaac's favoritism for his son Esau. He loves his son Esau because his son Esau brings him good food. He's a hunter. He brings home good game. We have read about that already in chapter 25, but now we see how deep it goes. Custom in those days was for fathers to give to each of their sons great blessing and great inheritance if they had it, and to give a double portion to the firstborn. So you bless them all, but you bless the firstborn with some extra. And that act of doing that was a way of saying, when I'm gone, you're the heir. You're in charge now after I'm gone. Isaac takes this a step further, though. Unlike the other fathers in the book of Genesis, he gives all of the blessing, all of the inheritance to Esau, and nothing to Jacob. So you see him here favoring one son to the neglect of another. He loves one son so much, he does not do his duty for the other son. We are starting to see just how deep that favoritism Isaac has for Esau goes. We had been told earlier, Rebekah loved Jacob, and Isaac loved Esau because he loved to eat of his meat. Now we're seeing that it goes quite deep. In the next scene, the second scene, Rebekah then overhears Isaac saying to Esau, go get the food, I want to bless you. She favors the other son. She favors Jacob. So she goes and finds Jacob in the second scene, second conversations between the two of them, and she says, okay, I've got a plan. Your dad wants to give everything to your brother. I want you to go to the field, get a goat, I'll prepare it, I'll make good food. You disguise yourself as Esau, put on his garments, put goat skin on your arms so that he'll think you're hairy like your brother, you go in there and trick your father into blessing you instead of blessing your brother. Now we're seeing how deep Rebecca's favoritism toward Jacob goes, aren't we? She wants the whole thing to go to him. So you got one father that favors one son, a mother that favors the other, and here is the root of all of this conflict they have. Later, it will backfire on both of them. Jacob wants, I'm sorry, Isaac wants to give the whole blessing to Esau. What does he wind up doing? 
giving the whole blessing to Jacob and nothing to Esau. He will see soon enough his son that he loves melt down and say, Father, do you even have one blessing for me? It's backfired in his face. And it will backfire on Rebecca as well. She loves Jacob. She prefers Jacob. That's where her favoritism lies. And yes, he will get the blessing, but he will have to leave because his brother wants to kill him. She thinks for a little while, but in truth, Jacob will leave forever, and by the time he comes back, she will be dead. So she will never see the son that she loves again. So in their favoritism for their two sons, and in the way it just blows up in their face, we see a warning. Don't, don't favor one child to the neglect of another. Here's the Lord teaching us, warning us against some of our tendencies to favor some over the other. He says, don't favor one child over the neglect of another. We see another deep consequence here in that the favoritism of Isaac and Rebekah worsens the sibling rivalry of Jacob and Esau. And it often works that way, doesn't it? Kids as a rule, I know because I have four of them, they will find a way to compete with each other, won't they? And even in this story, Jacob came out of the womb grabbing Esau's heel, right? So it's just in their nature to compete against each other. When parents begin to pick favorites and say, I like this one more than I like this one, what that does is worsen and magnify that rivalry between siblings. This will get so great that by the end of this story, Esau will be breathing threats saying, I am ready to kill my brother Jacob once the days of mourning for my father are past. So in that, we see yet another warning. That favoritism can worsen that sibling rivalry. The principle there is don't, don't favor one child to the neglect of another. The whole teaching of the Bible there when it comes to parents and children is that we are to warmly love all of our children, to patiently teach all of our children, and to generously bless all of our children. We owe that to all of them, our love, our teaching, our generosity, you give that to all of them. Now sometimes, and the Proverbs will say this, a parent might find that one child is wiser than another and might actually find more joy in the wisdom of that one child than in the other. The Proverbs say, a wise son brings joy to his father, but a foolish son brings shame to his mother, right? So you may have many children. They may be adults, some of them walking with Jesus and making you proud, and you may feel some satisfaction, some happiness over that. You may have other adult children who aren't walking with the Lord and walking in foolishness and doing things you wish they weren't doing. And even as I bring it up, you might feel a little embarrassment, a little shame over that. That's not favoritism. That's not what we're talking about here. That's wisdom working itself out. But what can happen is you can favor that wise one so much that you neglect your duties to the other one. That's when we cross the line to favoritism, right? When that joy we feel in the one and the embarrassment you might feel over another crosses the line that you are neglecting your duties to the other one, then we come into favoritism. So when all of a sudden we no longer warmly love that wayward child or no longer gently and patiently teach that wayward child, right? Just give up on him. I'm tired of trying to teach him. I'm I'm done with it. Or when we refuse to generously bless that child that's more difficult or that child that is bringing embarrassment to us, then we've come into favoritism and then we've crossed a line that the Lord is warning us against here. 
the warnings are that that can bring out competition among the children. The favored child might gloat. The unfavored child might rebel against us and try to do all sorts of things that, that draw attention to themselves. The warning across the board, don't favor one child to the neglect of another. So that's our first warning against favoritism in the household. We see that in those two scenes there, both when we see how much Jacob is willing, I'm sorry, how much Isaac is willing to go to in his favor of Esau, and of the links that Rebecca is willing to go to in her favoring of Jacob. The warning there, don't favor one child to the neglect of another. Second warning we see is a warning against manipulation in the family of God and in our homes. How tempting it is to pull strings and lie and deceive to get our way, especially among those we love and among those who, who, whose buttons we know how to push. We see this come to light in the remaining four scenes in scenes three through seven. So we see at first the great links that Rebecca is willing to go to to get her way and pull this ruse by which Jacob will deceive his father. Look at some of those details with me. Uh, in verse 6, we can see, 27 verse 6, Rebecca goes to her son and takes initiative to say, okay, I have a plan. So she's taking initiative to do this. In verse 14, she's willing to prepare the food herself, such as her husband loves. In verse 15, she is willing to disguise Jacob in Esau's garments. And then in verse 13, she's willing even to say, if you get cursed for doing this, let your curse be upon me. So this is deep deception she is willing to engage in, much work she's willing to do to pull this whole plan together. She is deep in string pulling and in manipulation to try to trick her husband to bless the son that he doesn't want to bless. And Jacob is engaging in just as much deception. He hears this plan from his mother, and in verse 12, his only concern is, hey, mom, it's not, hey, mom, I don't think we should lie to dad. It's, what if I get caught and I get cursed instead of being blessed? We then see him in verses 19, 20, and 24. He lies three times to his father. And in the middle one, in verse 20, I don't think it's an accident that this is the middle one, he even invokes the name of the Lord in a lie. His dad says, how did you find the food so quickly? Well, the Lord your God blessed me in the hunt. These are deep levels of deception that these two are willing to go through to pull off this ruse. The consequences we will see in the fifth scene. After the whole ruse is pulled, you can see towards the end of the chapter in verse 41, now Jacob hated Esau because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching and then I will kill my brother Jacob. Now one wants to kill the other. In the scene after that, Rebecca realizes what is going on. She tells Jacob, you're gonna have to get out of here. He wants to kill you, you've gotta lead. So in scene six, 
she figures out a way to pull this off. How am I going to protect Jacob now? I'm going to have to convince my husband to send him away so that Esau can't kill him. So she starts to manipulate again. In front of her husband, she laments and moans. Oh, you remember those Hittite women our son married? Oh, they make my life miserable. What good would my life be if Jacob were to marry them too? So that Isaac will say, yeah, yeah, we got to send Jacob back to your hometown to find a wife there. And then in the seventh scene, Isaac does just that. He calls Jacob in. He sends him off. He says, God bless you. Go back to your mom's hometown and find a wife there. So this thing ends with Rebecca all alone. Her husband is dying, and soon he will die. The son she loves is gone. She thinks he's going to come back. He's not going to come back. She's never going to see him again. Jacob is out in the desert with nothing. We will see in the next story, probably next week, he's going to sleep that night with a rock for a pillow because he's got nothing out there in the wilderness. Esau is fuming in anger, breathing murderous threats against his brother. The whole thing has blown up in everyone's face. Notice the irony here. Rebecca gets what she wants, and Jacob gets what he wants. It works, right? He gets the blessing. But they are severed, and they will never see each other again, and it has blown up in their face anyway. This is a little picture of what the Proverbs tell us in Proverbs 21.6. The, the getting of riches by a lying tongue is a fleeting vapor and a snare of death. If you lie to get what you want, you might get it. It might work. But then the treasure will begin to fade. And as the treasure does fade, the lie will continue to work its damage and its death all throughout your life. Meanwhile, the Proverbs tell us in chapter 6 that the Lord looks down from heaven and is angered at a lying tongue, right? There are several things the Lord hates. A lying tongue is one of them. And so here we are. You've told a lie to get what you want. You've got the treasure for a moment, but it's fading away. The lie is still damaging you. And you've damaged your relationship with God on high, who is now angry as he hears this lie that has come out of your mouth. So yeah, you might get what you're going for if you lie, but it will never be worth it, and it will always fade. Similarly, Paul says to one of the churches, if you bite and devour one another, watch that you don't consume one another. So what's the point? The point is that manipulation and lies in the family, it tears people apart. It tears families apart. And some of you could, could take my place here right now and tell stories of how that has happened in your own home and you've seen it happen there because we're that familiar with it sometimes. This warning, like the previous one, uh, has kind of, a, kind of a line there. It might make you ask, okay, well, what's the difference then between trying to influence somebody in, you know, in a good and godly way and trying to pull strings and, and manipulate? Where's the line between the two? And I'll tell you where the line is. The line is, is when you engage in either selfishness or deception, right? Telling lies, or if your motive is really selfish rather than the good of another person. Godly influence and, and wise counsel means telling the truth honestly to somebody and doing it for their good, right? This is what I think you should do because I think it would be good for you. Manipulation is different because it has selfish ends and selfish means. You're telling them what you think they should do because it would be good for you, right? 
And often it engages in lying and deception on the way, as Rebecca and Jacob both did here. So, for example, sometimes the two can look really similar, and you may see something happen and not be able to tell which one it is. For instance, uh, maybe a mother at some point is, is getting a child in, in the car, and, well, if you know much about having kids, getting them buckled in and doing all that, it's just, there's a lot of work to it, especially if the child doesn't want to cooperate with that. Anybody been there before? And so you may see the mother telling the child, okay, if, if you cooperate, don't throw a fit here. When we get home, I'll give you a piece of candy. But if you don't, I'm going to discipline you, right? Okay. You can't tell just from looking at that. Is that mother just wisely teaching that child, or is she manipulating? You can't tell. What would the difference be? Well, if on one hand the mom is saying, I really want my child to learn how to conduct themselves well, how to not throw fits when they're being put in the car seat. I want them to live a wise life, so I'm teaching them wisdom. And the mom's telling the truth, right? Really will give the child a piece of candy when you get home. Really will discipline the child if the child doesn't cooperate. This is godly counsel. This is wisdom. This is a mom that loves their child and is trying to teach them truth. Same mom, though could instead be thinking, oh, I'm so tired of this, right? or I, I just want the kid in the car, I just need to get home, and so out of their own selfishness and impatience says, okay, fine, I'll give you a piece of candy when we get home if you would just do this, right? Selfish motives instead of desiring to teach the child. And maybe she knows that the kid's gonna fall asleep on the way home and you're not really gonna have to give him a piece of candy, right? So now we're engaging in lying, and there's selfishness involved, and now all of a sudden we're manipulating the child. From the outside, you can't tell what's going on, but the difference is often inside in the heart. Is it honest and loving, or is it lying and selfish? Which one is it? That will answer the question oftentimes of, am I trying to influence this person in a godly way? way? Or am I trying to manipulate this person? Am I telling the truth? Am I doing it for their good? Or am I lying and doing it for my own good? That's our second warning this morning against manipulation. So we've seen then the disastrous effects of redefining marriage for a Christian to marry outside of God's people, for fathers and husbands to to passively lead their families and, and not take charge when they need to. And this week, the disastrous effects of favoritism in the house and of manipulation in the home. You can add all this up, and we've got a really clear picture here, right? Sin, when it runs wild in our homes, can tear our homes apart. And that alone would be good warnings, but would kind of lead us into despair, right? Like, torn apart, there's no hope. What are we going to do? But there is a bright glimmer of hope in this story, and I can't wait to show it to you. Now, the way this story ended, the younger son, Jacob, wound up on top, right? On top of the older son, Esau. So now the older is serving the younger. That's how things landed. Let's flip back to chapter 25. And what I want to show you is that God purposed that would happen before these two boys were born. In chapter 25, Verse 23, the backstory is Rebecca is now pregnant with these two boys, and she doesn't know it's twins in her womb. She just knows that something funny is going on in there. Uh, What's really happening is the boys are fighting with each other in the womb. She doesn't know what's going on. She goes to a prophet, 
And the, or, sorry, she goes to the Lord, and the Lord says to her, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and here it is, the older shall serve the younger. So, rampant sin among God's people, right? This story is a holy mess. And yet, God said from before they were born, here's how it's going to land. Here's how I'm going to end things. I'm going to bless Jacob. And despite their worst efforts, he does exactly that. Now, if you're part of the people of God and you know how this story ends, you can receive that as good news. God has said from before the beginning of time, I intend to bless my people. And what we see in a story like this is even when things get messy, even when things get terrible, even when it's all our fault, the Lord looks down from heaven and he says, well, I intended to bless these people and I'm going to do it. The people of Israel would have seen that story just like that. So Jacob's descendants will become the nation that, that is, in a sense, the people of God, the nation of Israel. His name will be changed to Israel, and his descendants will be the people of Israel. They will look back at this story, and they will say, oh, wait a minute. Yeah, these people are a mess, and they're our fathers. And that kind of explains why we're a mess right? Like there, there they are under King Solomon who is in the greatest empire of all time has just turned into idolatry and thrown the whole thing to pieces. It's empires being ripped apart in two under Rehoboam and things just get worse and worse from there. Eventually they're cast off into exile and it's their own fault because they committed idolatry against the Lord. Now they're looking back and they're saying, oh, we've, we've always been a mess and God has always intended to bless us. So can you see how that would give them a hope that this story is going to end with the people of God on top? Okay, now let's think about us. We're looking around, and I wish that the phrase Christian bully didn't exist, but there are so many Christian bullies on Twitter right now, just making a mockery of the people of God with the way they're acting and the way they are treating others. There are high-profile cases of abuse and even sexual abuse, some in the SBC that we are a part of, leaders not stepping up to handle it. There are pulpits that should be dedicated to Jesus Christ that instead are dedicated to the rainbow flag or to making America great again. But we can look back and we can say, oh, We've always been a mess, right? We've always been a bunch of Rachels and Isaacs and Jacobs and Esau's all together, all of it blowing up in our faces. It's been going on for thousands of years, but how does the story end? The story ends with the lamb-like lion conquering the dragon and the people of God victorious. So if they can't mess up that trajectory of history, good news, Christians, neither can we. Despite our worst efforts, Jesus Christ will wind up on top of that dragon, and those who stick with him will conquer with him forever. Now that is good news, people of God. 
So here's where this lands for, for us. For some of us, we are looking at this from the outside and saying, okay, I can see from the outside that this group that calls itself the church is a big old mess. And we will not disagree with you. We are a big mess. But here's the invitation we want to make to you. A story like this, it lets us survey how messed up the people of God are, but then it turns our eyes to the goodness of the God who has blessed us. And I would like to, if you're not one of the people of God, I would like to turn your eyes from how messed up we are, acknowledging it fully, and invite you to look up to the goodness of the God who says, these messed up people are mine, and I will not let them go. Now, I want you to see that because I want you to see that if you would come and be one of his people, friend, he would not let you go either. If he loves us, even though we are messed up, good news, friend, he will love you even though you are messed up as well. So, so would you put off the self-consciousness that says, I'm not good enough for this God. Right? I know I have turned against him and I have sinned against him. He would never receive me back. And would you put off the pride that says, I'm too good for these people to be one of them and look to the God who says, no one is good enough for me, but I will receive everyone who comes. Friend, by the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for the forgiveness of sins, anyone who would come and receive grace can receive it. Now, he will make you new. He will begin to make you into a new person. You will get better and better with his work in your life. But as you are, he will take you. So my invitation, friend, is come, receive Jesus Christ, receive grace, receive forgiveness, and become a part of this people whom God loves no matter what. Some of us will look back on this and we will say, some of you Christians, the people of God, you'll say, you know, I have at times been guilty of some of these sins. Or sometimes I've been the parent that played favorites and I shouldn't. If that's you, the Lord's calling you to turn from that or under his lordship. Or some of you would say, I have been manipulative in my house or in my church or among God's people. If that's you, the Lord's calling you to turn from it. And others of you this morning, the Lord is calling you to come into the kingdom of God, and I invite you, would you come in? We're going to pray now. We're just going to give anybody who needs it a time to turn to come back to Jesus Christ, and then we'll stand and we'll sing one more song together. Let's pray.